Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Okay, good morning. Okay, normal temperature for the first time in a month on a Sunday. Mid-70s in June, right? 95, 55, 95. I don't know if it's like 75 today. That's what we've been hoping for. So now that I've done the monthly, weekly weather update, we can jump into this. Okay. This morning I want to talk to you about your witness or your testimony. How many of you have gone to church for more than 10 years? Okay. Then you've probably heard the phrase... Uh, testimony or witness. And maybe it brings to your mind the same thing that it brings to my mind, even though I want to try to challenge us today. It's like um, a, a witnessing is this event that you do and you try to share the gospel with a person, right? And you, you, I was witnessing to someone. I, I'm going to go out witnessing today, and it's like this event, right? Something you can put on the calendar. You start witnessing at such and such a time, and then you stop witnessing, right? It's like a start and stop, like a water faucet you can turn off and turn on, and that's often what we, how we use the word witness. Testimony is something we say about God's work in our life. Um, so, you know, what's your testimony? Your, your testimony might be your story, uh, you know, how you came to Christ. But I want you to think of your testimony or your witness not so much as a story that you tell or an event that you participate on and off. I want you to think of it like the sound of your house. Uh, if you were in my house, there's sound all the time. I have three little kids live in a row home, even when it's silent, it's not silent. Uh, there's always the sound of a neighbor doing something in their house or working out front or out back. There's always the sound of air purifiers or an air conditioner running. There's always the sound of what sounds like an entire Beyblade tournament happening in my living room, even though it's one kid somehow spinning seven or eight Beyblades at once. There's always the sound of a two-year-old saying, milk, milk. Uh, there's always the sound of uh, life happening in my house. It's conversations, it's feet running across the floor. It's, there's always some sound, but then there's also occasionally the sound of the TV, and the TV gets turned off and turned on, but the sound of the life never gets turned off or turned on. Even when we're asleep, there's still creaks and groans, and even at 11.30, there's still two little feet that run into our bedroom and uh, things like that. So the sound of life never turns off. The sound of the TV, the radio, whatever, turns off and turns on. What I would like to do today is help us see how our witness or our testimony is not like the sound of the TV that is turned off and on, but it is like the sound of our life that is constant. It's always happening. But I want to go even further with that because I don't want it to just be a constant thing. Our testimony or our witness is not just our story. Uh, a lot of people think or have used this uh, method that the way we will share a testimony or be a witness to the world is in our successes for Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. It's super common, and I don't have a problem with this as long as it's balanced. It is super common to look at successful people who are Christians and say, ah, that's, our, that's the face of the church. That's the, so we have, you know, athletes, actors and actresses, musicians, politicians, influencers, megachurch pastors, and we look at their success and we're like, oh, look how good Jesus has been in their life because of all the success they've had. And we want them to be the face of the church. And if we can just convince the world that if you follow Jesus, you too will be successful. And then people buy that and they start following Jesus and they find out, dang, this is harder. Like, I can't, I'm not as handsome as Tim Tebow. I mean, I am, but like, 
you wouldn't be. I'm not, you know, some famous politician, actor, actress, you know, uh, influencer. I, I'm not that. It, uh, this was something that uh, A.W. Tozer really pushed against in the 1950s. He was frustrated that it seemed like churches would bring in athletes and he was like, do you think Jesus is going to help you throw a curveball? You think Jesus is going to help you rush for 100 yards? Do you think Jesus is going to make you famous? Is that why people are following Jesus? Because they think that Jesus is going to give them success in worldly pursuits and worldly endeavors. And unfortunately, a lot of people did buy into that. And I don't know that that's what the churches were trying to communicate, but that's how it came across, is that if you follow Jesus, it'll be better for business, better for marriage, better for your reputation, better for your resume. It'll get you into better schools. And you read the Bible and you're like, yeah, it seemed like it was mostly, you know, better for bruises and beatings, not necessarily your business or anything else. And so there, there is a benefit to following Jesus. There are real, tangible benefits to following Jesus. But I'm not sure that that should be the essence of our testimony, our witness. In the New Testament, our testimony and our witness is not through our success. It is through our willingness to suffer for Jesus. And that is totally uh, almost contrary to this Jesus will make you throw a, a tighter curveball, uh, your, your retirement fund will blow up, and all these wonderful things will happen. In the New Testament, to follow Jesus was an invitation to suffering. It was an invitation to hardship. And the initial followers of Jesus knew that, but they just, they're like, yeah, I know that, but I'm still in. Because I've seen Jesus I've seen how glorious he is. I've seen what he can do in a person's life, and so I'm choosing to follow Jesus. You know, in the New Testament, the word for witness is the same as the word for martyr. You guys know what a martyr is? A martyr is someone who gives their lives for their faith, for their religious beliefs. It's someone who is willing to die rather than give up on their religious beliefs. So the word for witness in the New Testament is the same as the word for martyr. If we refuse to suffer for Jesus, then we are refusing to witness. We are refusing to testify. We're refusing to be that faithful voice that the world needs to hear. The world is moved more powerfully by people that are willing to suffer for Jesus than people that are willing to share their success through Jesus. I want to really quickly explain what I mean by a martyr by comparing and contrasting a martyr spirit with a martyr complex. So if you can throw that slide up on the screen, it's going to, on the top, have the definition of a martyr spirit, and on the bottom, the definition of a martyr complex. Let me just read these really quickly for us. Martyr spirit is the good one, okay? Just to make it clear, I'm not trying to trick anyone. Martyr spirit a person who lives with an attitude of self-sacrifice. This person is willing to ultimately give their life for Christ. So smaller daily sacrifices and troubles for the sake of Christ are considered an honor and a joy. Their testimony for Christ is the most important thing. I'm thinking of the beginning of the book of James where it says, consider it a joy when you suffer trials and hardships because they develop and strengthen your faith. So what we want is people that have the spirit of a martyr. Most of you, potentially all of you, are not going to have to die for Jesus. But your willingness to die for Jesus will empower your ability to live for Jesus. If you're willing to die for Jesus, then a little bit of shame, a little bit of uh, mockery, a little bit of hardship is not going to be that big of a deal because, well, I'm willing to die. Now, there is something that's basically a counterfeit of this. It's called a martyr complex. A martyr complex is a person who isn't really suffering for Jesus, but they want to make every hard thing that happens seem like they're suffering for Jesus. So a person with a martyr complex is a person who is convinced that all of their suffering or troubles are the result of their holiness. Every, they hit every red light on the way to work. It's the devil trying to get them because they're so righteous. They imagine offenses and persecution. And they are sure to publicly complain about it. Their comfort is the most important thing. So a person with a martyr complex will say, oh, my boss wrote me up because I was talking about Jesus. And really, it's because you were late to work three days in a row. 
They'll find a way that every hard thing that they experience is because I'm so holy, I'm so righteous, I'm so Christ-like that every heart, it's, that's why it's, ra- it's raining today because the devil's trying to get me down. And in reality, it's just normal, everyday things that people experience. Sometimes it's consequences of their own actions. We do not want to live with a martyr complex. And that did come up a little bit in the last 18 months. You could kind of see people were feeling like they were being persecuted for their faith when in reality they just weren't in control anymore. I think that a lot of Christians in America are starting to feel what it's like to not be the majority and they're thinking that that's persecution when really it's just the loss of influence. This is what it's like to not be in control anymore. That's not persecution. That's just what other people have experienced all over the world for thousands of years. Persecution, well, we'll get to, I'm going to get to persecution later, but the loss of influence, the loss of power, the loss of the majority is not the same thing as persecution. But to those who have always been in power, it feels like it. It feels like, oh, we're getting taken advantage of, and really it's just now you're not the majority. Now you're not the ones in control. Now, we're going to look at 1 Peter today, chapter 2. Um, 1 Peter, the, the context of 1 Peter is really important, so we're going to throw, I'm just going to throw a one-paragraph slide up that's going to explain the background of 1 Peter. Uh, this is from the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible. It says, 1 Peter is an encouragement to stand firm in the faith despite the difficult situation challenging the faith and endurance of the Christian believers. Peter writes further to explain why, as Christians, they have become the target of slander and social ostracism. Suffering for their faith confirms their identity in Christ. As they conform their lives to the example of Jesus, they should not be surprised to receive the same hostile reaction that he did. Peter then instructs his readers how to live as faithful Christians within a difficult social situation by accepting suffering as part of their calling and living as winsome witnesses to the gospel by blessing those who insult and oppose them. Any guesses who wrote first Peter? Peter. Very good. Excellent. A plus. Peter wrote first Peter. Peter was one of the three disciples that was the closest to Jesus. Now you might remember that the night Jesus was arrested, Peter was like, I've never met this Jesus guy. Three times he denied that he even knew Jesus because Peter was not about suffering. Peter was about power. Peter was about control. Peter liked Jesus because Jesus was the king and he thought, I want to be close to the king so that when the king becomes, uh, comes into power, I want to be near him. When, when Peter learned quickly that following Jesus was going to mean suffering, he was like, I am not having this. Do you know what Peter did before he denied Jesus? Do you know what he did when they came to arrest Jesus? Peter pulled out a sword. You might remember this story. And one of the arresting officers that was trying to capture Jesus, I say capture Jesus like Jesus was putting up a fight. He just stood there. Peter pulled out a sword and struck this officer in the ear, cutting his ear off. And Jesus said, stop, put your sword away. Then he said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. A little foreshadowing. And he picked up the man's ear out of the dust and put it back on his head. And... Uh, so Peter was not about to let Jesus go to jail, but then when Jesus was arrested, Peter was not about to go to jail with Jesus. And Peter denied Jesus three times. An incredible thing happens to Peter in Acts chapter 2. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, totally changes. Now all of a sudden, Peter is willing to suffer for Jesus. He goes to prison because he won't stop healing people in Jesus' name. He takes a beating. He receives a whipping. Because he's like, listen, I cannot stop talking about what I've seen and heard. This is Acts chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 5. Eventually, this is not in the Bible, but church tradition tells us, and this is pretty well attested, Peter died because he was crucified upside down. They martyred Peter because Peter would not stop talking about Jesus. The same Peter who denied that he knew Jesus now won't stop talking about Jesus, and it was said that they were gonna crucify Peter, and Peter said, I'm not worthy to die the way Jesus died. Crucify me upside down. So they put Peter on a cross and then crucified him upside down, and he died a martyr. This is, 
This is who wrote this passage that we're going to look at today. This is who wrote this. He's going to call us to suffering, but I want you to understand that he's not calling us to do anything he himself has not experienced. He's not calling us to do anything that Jesus didn't do for you. He's not calling us to do anything that he didn't do for Jesus. He's just, he's saying, do what we've been doing. He's calling us into the cradle of the Christian church, which is those that are willing to live for Jesus even if it costs them. So let me read from First uh, Peter chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 21 through 23, kind of a short passage today. This is up on the screen. Great. All right. I'm going to pause in the middle of this probably twice at least. First Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose. Okay, pause. <laughs> you have been called for this purpose. What purpose is he referring to? Well, this is not on the screen, but if you just back up one verse, if you have a Bible, just go back one verse to verse 20. He says, at the end of verse 20, if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So what purpose have they been called for? Suffering for what is right. Oh, I was hoping you'd say like spiritual gifts or something. But he's saying, this is the purpose you've been called for, to suffer for what is right, just like Jesus. You've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. I hope you're connecting the dots here. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Okay, so you've been called for this purpose, to suffer for what is right. Christ suffered for you. That's your example to now suffer, how you're going to suffer for him. This is probably not the most effective gospel presentation these days. Never even heard it used as an opportunity to share the gospel. Verse 22, this is the example Jesus set. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So, this is what this passage is saying. You have been called for a purpose. What's the purpose? To suffer for doing what's right. How are you to suffer for doing what's right? Jesus provided an example. His, his example was this. Don't sin. Don't verbally attack. Don't threaten physical harm. Trust yourself to God. That's how... Jesus exemplified suffering. So we're going to break that down. This is the first thing he says. He says, Jesus' example was this. There was no sin found in his mouth. So he says, he says to us, don't sin. Verse 22. He, he who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. That's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 53. Does anyone know what the common, uh, the common title for Isaiah 53, Jesus is referred to as the Suffering servant. One of, the, one of the harder to understand Old Testament prophecies for the Jewish people, why, why would he suffer? Why would the Messiah suffer? Isn't he supposed to come take over? Why would he suffer? That's, that still confounds people today. Like, why would the one who's in charge suffer? So Peter is quoting Isaiah 53 here when he says he committed no sin, nor is any deceit found in his mouth. So this is the first example Jesus sets for suffering, for doing what's right. It should not be, uh, there shouldn't be sin involved. You should not sin. This kind of has two applications. Number one, Jesus' sin did not cause his suffering. We know that Jesus never sinned. He didn't sin. It says in Hebrews that he uh, was tempted in every way just as you and I are but was without sin. It actually says also in Hebrews that Jesus learned through suffering. This is the, it says that Jesus, in Hebrews, it says he was perfected through suffering. The perfect man was perfected through suffering. That's interesting to me. Obviously, it means that perfect does not mean what you and I think perfect means. It means he was completed. He was brought to fullness and wholeness through suffering. But it wasn't Jesus' sin that caused him to suffer. Unlike you and I, who, when we sin, there's natural consequences that invite some uncomfortable situations into our lives. Jesus' suffering was not because he sinned. Jesus was suffering because he didn't sin. Jesus suffered because of his righteousness. Jesus suffered for doing what was right. So when it says 
There, he committed no sin. His suffering was not deserved. He didn't earn it. You know, sometimes it's hard to have sympathy or empathy for a person who's kind of like brought their calamity on themselves. Jesus didn't bring his calamity upon himself. We brought his calamity upon him. And he stepped into it to protect us and to save us. So his suffering was not caused by sin, but he also did not sin during his suffering. No deceit was found in his mouth. Jesus did not sin during his suffering. At no point when Jesus was arrested, tried, really, and his trial was unjust. I mean, it, wasn't, it, it did not follow the laws of how a trial was supposed to go. He was tried in a, basically a religious trial and then a civil trial. Even, even the Roman governor really did not want to crucify Jesus, but there was such an uproar that, that he decided to uh, allow it. When he was put on the cross, when he was beaten, he didn't sin. I don't know that you and I could have managed that. He didn't sell out. He didn't falsify his testimony. He didn't do any of that stuff. So not only was his suffering not the result of his sin, but even in the midst of suffering, he didn't sin. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, there's this verse that says, in your anger, do not sin. Even when you're experiencing these intense situations, and I am sure that Jesus felt anger. I am sure that Jesus felt abandonment. I am sure that Jesus felt frustration because I know that right prior to this, he prayed to the point where he was sweating blood. He was not, you know, smiling through this, I don't think, even though he willingly took it on. And he endured all of this, it says in Hebrews, for the joy that is set before him. But in all of this intensity, he still did not sin. I think he knew that he had to honor God as he went through this. Because if he sinned, he forfeits the whole redemption plan. You know, suffering squeezes out what's been going inside of you. You're kind of like a sponge. And suffering is the squeezing of that sponge. Whatever has been inside of you is going to come out. If, if good stuff has been being placed inside of you, that good stuff is going to come out. But if bad stuff has been placed inside of you, that's going to come out. And so in moments of suffering, in moments of intensity, in moments of pressure, you're going to find out what's been put inside of you. I mean, it is a huge revealing process when you go through suffering. You find out what you're really made of. You find out what your life has been built upon. So can I make a suggestion? When you are in a period of ease, when you're not suffering, you better make sure you're depositing good stuff. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like Okay, at least temporarily, some of the difficulty and pressure of social stuff has at least temporarily subsided a little bit. You better make sure that you're making good deposits in your soul right now. Because if, you're putting, if, if the only thing that drives you to Jesus is hard circumstances, you're signing up for a life of hard circumstances. But if even in moments of ease, in moments of calm, in moments of peace, you're depositing hope, Joy, love, you know, if you're putting that in your soul, that's, what it, that's what's going to come out during moments of pressure too. It's like a sponge. When you get squeezed, whatever you've been putting in is going to come out. So Jesus did not sin to bring about his suffering, nor did he sin during his suffering. It says in verse 23 that he also did not verbally attack. In verse 23 it says, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. To revile is to accuse or attack a person verbally. It's to insult. Actually, the Greek word means to heap, to heap abuse upon a person. That's what they were doing to Jesus. Now, eventually they physically attack him, but they're also verbally attacking him. They are mocking him. They're ridiculing him. They're, they have false testimony against him in the trial. Uh, you can find all of the trial stuff at the end of Matthew as well as the other gospels. Matthew uh, 26 has a ton of this information. They're heaping abuse on Jesus. And what does Jesus say back? Nothing. He does not heap abuse on them when he would have been justified to do so. Think about this. When he was arrested and Peter cut off that arresting officer's ear, Jesus could have stuck up for himself, started cussing out the officers, defended himself, but instead he allowed himself to be arrested. 
He was in custody of the high priest when they were smacking him in the face, spitting on him, mocking him. Oh, if you're a prophet, prophesy, who hit you? They asked him if he was the Christ, and he said, well, you said it out of your own mouth. Then they brought him to the Roman governor. So they go from a religious trial to now a civil trial. The governor asks him if he's the king of the Jews, and he says, I am. But he doesn't say, oh, you're going to find out. He is made to carry his cross, the upright part of the cross, probably, and this is after being beat, by the way, and while he's, while he's whipped roughly almost 40 times, does not scream out an accusation, does not curse anyone. He's beaten, and then he has to carry probably a 100-pound wooden uh, upright portion of the cross to the crucifixion, He's, gained, he's given a little help by Simon of Cyrene. At no point does he say, you fools, you idiots. At no point does he say that. You wicked, evil men. He gets on the cross. They put him on the cross between two thieves. One of the thieves is just continuing the mockery. Huh. If you're the Christ, save me and save you. Ironically, The other thief that keeps his mouth shut does get saved. But the one that mocks him, he he cries out for mocking salvation and doesn't receive it. The one who humbly entrusts himself to Jesus does receive salvation. He's on the cross. There are soldiers surrounding him. He's between two thieves. There's a crowd around him. Jesus is probably naked or almost naked on the cross. And at no point does he say, you idiots, I'm going to... At no point does he do that. You know what he does say? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. One of the few things Jesus says is a prayer of forgiveness. He does not heap abuse on them. He heaps love and forgiveness upon them. He makes sure that his mother is cared for. He prays to God. These are, these are the final words of Jesus that we cover every uh, Good Friday. For the most part... In his suffering, Jesus kept silent except to affirm his identity and to pray for the forgiveness of those that were causing his suffering. Verse 23 continues in Jesus' example. It says, he did not threaten. He says, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus never physically threatened or intimidated anyone in any way. Now, if you read in the end of Matthew, Matthew chapter 26, this is actually the story where Jesus uh, is arrested that I mentioned earlier where Peter cuts a man's ear off. They come to arrest Jesus. Peter cuts, uh, pulls his sword out, cuts a man's ear off, and Peter says, or Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. This is not what we're about. I've never taught you to do this. We've never had sword fights and battles. We've never practiced any of this. Those that live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Jesus later says to Peter, you know, I could have had six legions of angels if I wanted them. So I did the math on what six legions is, 72,000 angels. He's like, don't you know, I I could have had 72,000 angels here. That would be a little scary, right? Every time angels show up uh, in the Bible, it only takes one to get everybody knocked on their butt. Imagine 72,000. So Jesus is like, yo, I, I could have had 72,000 angels here if I wanted. To the soldiers that arrested him, and they show up, it says, with clubs, swords, weapons. This is what Jesus says. Why do you need weapons? I was in the temple every day teaching, unarmed. You show up like I'm a criminal. I'm a teacher. The, Jesus is trying to communicate, there is no physical threat here. I have never, you know, threatened, intimidated anyone with physical harm. He's not threatening them. He's not, he could have called all these angels, but he chooses not to. He he says essentially, I'm a teacher, not a criminal. He says in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. I think what he's trying to communicate is I'm not here to threaten you with physical violence and harm. 
This is how Jesus exemplified suffering. And then finally, at verse 23, it says this, he, entrusted, he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus trusted God. So I wish that this passage said more about his trust because I would like to know. <laughs> what did that mean? But here's what I know from the, the big picture of the life of Jesus. Seems like there were at least two ideas that Jesus was fully convinced of that helped him trust God. Jesus knew that God was in control of everything. Jesus had a high, high view of God's, what we call God's sovereignty, that God is in control of everything. I don't think the thought ever crossed Jesus' mind, I'm not sure God knows about this. I'm not sure God has this under control. Jesus never doubted God's sovereignty. He had a high, high view that God was in control. And with that, this second conviction, Jesus knew that God was good. And he actually taught that on multiple occasions, how good God was. There's no one good but God. We should be good the way that God is good. So if you can trust that God is in control and you can trust that God is good, okay, you can trust whatever he puts you into. It's, it's, it's the doubt that God is control or the doubt in the goodness of God that causes us to squirm when we suffer. All right, God, I kind of don't know if you know what's going on down here. Or God, I'm not sure I trust that you're good. Like, I, I think maybe you're sadistic. I think maybe you're mean. And so we wiggle. We try to wiggle out of suffering because I'm not sure God is good or I'm not sure God is in control. Jesus didn't doubt either of those things. And because of that, Jesus was able to say, okay, God, not my will, but your will be done. I'm trusting in your goodness. I'm trusting in your control. It reminds me a little bit of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you know the story from the book of Daniel. These are Daniel's three friends that were put into a fiery furnace. And I don't know if you remember what they said before they went into the furnace. They said, our God is able to save us and he will. But <laughs> even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to you. I like that because that's about how I feel sometimes. Confident, but also let me leave a back door. God's going to save me, but if he doesn't, we're still not going to compromise to sin. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego entrusted themselves to God. You guys probably know how that story worked out. These three men are thrown into this furnace, and they look into the furnace, and not only is there three men, but there's a fourth man standing in the fire. And when I preached on this, or referenced this passage many, many months ago, the most common understanding of that passage is that that fourth person who's in the fire with them is Jesus. So the, the God that was being entrusted by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is now experiencing what they experienced. That's the incarnation. That's Jesus' humility. He didn't make Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through anything that he himself wasn't experiencing. So here's the example that Jesus set for us. He did not sin. So his, his suffering was not the result of his sin, nor did he sin during his suffering. He did not verbally attack he did not physically threaten. He trusted God instead. Here's a little brief phrase that I'm going to ask you to repeat. It summarizes Jesus' example of suffering. I will not sin, attack, or threaten. I will trust God. So before I ask you to repeat that, when you are going through suffering, whether it's at work, home, the general, generally in the culture, Jesus' example would lead us to say this, I will not sin, attack, or threaten. I will trust God. Would you be able to repeat that after me? I will not sin, attack, or threaten. I will trust God. Now, I want to put all of this in its proper context. This passage is referring to suffering for doing right in the name of Jesus. This does not mean that you have to become a doormat. Okay, I want to make sure that this doesn't, you don't go home and misapply or misunderstand what I'm talking about here. This is about suffering for doing right. This is not about random acts of violence against a person. Let me try to say this as clear as possible. If you're being mugged, you're allowed to run. If you're being mugged, you're allowed to scream. If you're being assaulted, you're allowed to 
speak up. You understand what I'm saying? Like, you are allowed to defend yourself. That is a different situation than when you are being persecuted for your faith. You understand what I'm saying? You got that? So if someone pulls a gun on you or attacks you in an alley, I don't want you to say like, oh, I have to be silent. Oh, I can't speak up. I'm talking about suffering for doing right. I'm not talking about random acts of violence that are committed against people. If you're in one of those situations, scream. (laughs) Jesus didn't scream when he was being persecuted, but you can scream for help. You can run. You understand what I'm saying? This This is a sticky thing because Jesus also said, turn the other cheek if someone strikes you. And Maybe someday I'll try to preach on this. But as I I looked at the turn the other cheek passage this week, turn the other cheek is Jesus' response to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And if I can do this in 90 seconds, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was the Old Testament law. Their laws had to be memorable because not everyone could read, so they had to be something you could memorize easily. Also, they didn't have prisons because they're wandering through the wilderness. The, the justice system in ancient Israel is so interesting because prison was not an option. When you live in tents and move around every day, you ain't going to have a prison. So you would have different punishments, fines or death. <laughs> That's about it. Eye for an eye or two for tooth was a way that you assured that people would get justice as a deterrent to crime but also to limit retribution. If they took your eye, you get to take their eye. You don't get to take their head. We're not going to escalate conflict, but we are going to assure justice. Does that make sense? So Jesus says, you've heard it's been said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I tell you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn to them the other also. I think that's, he's, he's addressing a different context than this passage. Uh, does that make sense? Which is suffering for doing what is right. So someday maybe I'll try to preach a whole sermon on that. That was like a 90-second overview. Speaking of overviews, overviews, if you have a paper Bible, well, no, it doesn't matter. If you have a paper Bible, you can go to First Peter if you haven't already. I want to read just a quick, this will only take about two minutes, summary of first Peter. And I want you to understand the context, which is suffering for doing what is right. This book is written by a man who suffered to people who suffered. And this is some of what uh, Peter says. You have been distressed by various trials. This is chapter one, verse seven. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 13, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. I think many, many of us are struggling to know how should the Christian interact to a government that is not Christian. And that because we've kind of in a way never had to do that but I want you to understand that's all they experienced in the, in the first century. They didn't have, no one was running for emperor and uh, holding up Bibles or saying what church they went to. They only had pagan leaders and they had to figure out how to be a Christian in a society where the government did not like them. So that's new to us, but it is not new to the church. It happens all over the world and has been happening all over the world for 2,000 years. They figured it out. We're going to have to figure it out. Verse 20. If when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. Chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. To sum up 
All of you, so this is how you're supposed to relate to one another. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Listen, when you look around and see your brothers and sisters suffering for Jesus, I think it's, he's saying like, yo, you better get along with each other. You're going to need each other. You know, when people, when people are starting to suffer for Jesus, you're going to really want your brothers and sisters in Christ to be around. So don't make things worse by making them suffer at your hand as well. Continuing chapter 3, verse 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better if God, uh, if God should will it that you suffer for what is doing right than for doing what is wrong. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Chapter 4, verse 8, Keep fervent in your love for one another. Verse 9, Be hospitable to one another. Verse 10, Employ, employ your gifts in serving one another. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Jesus, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. Chapter 5, verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and encourage you. That was 27 verses from 1 Peter that refer to how we are to uh, be faithful in the midst of suffering. Now it says in the last verse I read, give me a minute, I'm trying to wrap up here. It says in the last verse I read that God uses suffering to confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I don't know that strength is as valuable in the church as comfort is. I, I just feel like comfort has become, become the... Comfort and convenience have, be, for many people, become the number one priority. Is this convenient? Is this, is this comfortable? Does this not challenge me? Does this not stretch me? And you can choose that, but here's what you forfeit when you choose comfort. You forfeit strength and you forfeit stability. I mean, when, when you choose comfort, you lose all this depth that you gain when you go through some stuff, when you go through a little bit of suffering. Okay, last two things before Pastor John Eric comes and wraps up. I want you to pretend, just use your imagination for a moment. Imagine what would happen if the church celebrated those who suffered for Jesus the way we celebrate those who succeed for Jesus. I'm not against success for Jesus. I, I, I'm for that. But what if... Imagine the purity in our motives that would take place if the heroes of the church were the ones that suffered not the ones that sold out stadiums, right? Imagine if the ones that we lifted up as our examples were the ones who had been through some stuff, not figured out how to live your best life. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like, listen, if someone figures out some sort of vaguely Christian um, formula for how to, you know, make your marriage perfect and decorate your house and Christian, you know, gardening and all that, you know, whatever. 
They can get a they can get a stinking book deal, seminars, all that stuff. But if someone suffers for Jesus, I don't know that people really want to hear that. What would happen if we started to put the people who suffered on stage? Wouldn't that purify people's motives? People would stop following Jesus for what they can get out of it. They would actually follow Jesus because of his worth and his value. Wouldn't that change like the books that are written that we read? Wouldn't it change the things that we watch on YouTube or Facebook or wherever we find this stuff if we started to celebrate the people who suffered for Jesus the way that we celebrate the people that succeed for Jesus? Also, just as we look toward the future and starting uh, in two weeks, we're going to spend about a month talking about the return of Jesus. But I want to just, I guess, uh, warm up to that. It is impossible to remain faithful to Jesus and avoid suffering. I mean, it says it right there in the New Testament, anyone that wants to remain faithful in Christ will experience persecution. It is impossible to remain faithful to Jesus and avoid suffering. And that reality is going to become more and more clear as time goes on. And I want to say this very directly. You should start to expect to suffer for following Jesus. The church has always, this has always been how it's been in the church. You should expect to suffer for following Jesus. I think when you get shocked that you would have to suffer for your faith in Jesus, you start to freak out. You start to complain. You start to moan. You, you know, you... I want to change your expectations. You should begin to start expect to suffer. Um, this year was really a challenging year to help people walk through what this last year and a half. What are we going through? Everything with COVID, George Floyd, uh, uh, the election. All, it was very challenging to walk people through where are we right now in the big picture of the Bible. And I'm going to say this briefly now and explain it more in a couple weeks. For me, the main lens that I look through for how to tell where we are in the big picture of the Bible is when Jesus said, all of our sufferings will be like birth pains, okay? When, I, when we had our first kid, when we had Aiden, I remember the, the first contraction Kendra had. I said, this is it. I'm about to deliver this baby at home. Even though the doctor said, yeah, well, you know, when, don't even call us till the contractions are seven minutes apart. You should be coming to the hospital when they're five minutes apart. These contractions were a good 20, 30 minutes apart. And I was like, this is it. He's coming. And Kendra would be like, ooh. And I'm like, ah. Little did I know how intense it was going to get. I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. Jesus said the signs that precede his coming would be like birth pains. The first contraction that Kendra experienced, which was a mild discomfort, I said, this is it. And then the contractions got more intense and more frequent. And I said, this is it. And the doctor said, no, they're still 10 minutes apart. It's going to get more intense. And I said, surely it can't get more intense than this. And then they got to five minutes apart and Kendra started squeezing my hand and I felt little bones cracking. And I thought, surely, it's got to be now. But it only got more intense. And you get to the hospital. You're supposed to be 10 centimeters dilated. Seven centimeters dilated. Oh, come on. Surely, it can't get more intense than this, but it only got more intense. I guess what I'm trying to say to you is what we just experienced was a contraction, but not the delivery. It is only going to get more intense. If you thought, boy, this is probably not the most uplifting, encouraging sermon. If you thought the last year and a half was rough, it's only going to get more intense. I choose that word intentionally. I, would, I, I was going to say it's only going to get worse, but let me say it this way. It's also going to get better. It's going to get worse in the world, but better in the church. The church is finally going to be pure. The church is finally, we're finally going to be done with all this compromise, you know, uh, half-hearted, you know, middle ground junk. Because when it costs you to follow Jesus, there might be less people, but all the people that are here are going to be all in. 
You know, lukewarmness is not an option for persecuted Christians. It just does not exist in that context. So I don't want to say it's going to get worse because I do think in some days, in some ways, it's going to get better. I think the church is going to be victorious. I think it's going to be purified. I think it's going to be moving in greater power than it ever has. But I think it's going to cost us more. So I say this, it's going to get more intense. The last 18 months were a big old contraction. We are moving toward the culmination of history. I don't know where we are. When it came to Kendra, I thought we were about to have a baby. She labored at home for 12 hours before we had to go to the hospital. And then when we went to the hospital, it was about 90 minutes. But So I don't know where we are. I'm just saying what we just went through is a contraction. There's going to be more contractions. It's going to get more intense. When the contractions get more severe and more frequent, you know we're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Does that make sense? So I'm going to teach on that a little more in about a month or in the next uh, couple weeks. I'm going to ask Pastor John Eric if he would come up. He's going to help us wrap up and conclude this. I was going to lead us or, uh, in a time of prayer, but I think that song, Christ Be Magnified, would be more fitting to sing together and let that be our meditation and um, our prayer together, if that's okay with everyone. I'm calling an audible. All right, let's stand together.
be magnified in me This is our offering to you We entrust ourselves to you Say I won't bow down And I won't bow down to idols I'll stand strong and worship you And if it puts me in the fire I'll rejoice cause you're there too I won't be formed by feelings I hold fast to what is true If the cross brings transformation Then I'll be crucified with you Cause death is just a doorway Into resurrection life And if I join you in your suffering Then I'll join you when you rise And when you return in glory with all the angels and the saints My heart will still be singing And my soul will be the same Oh, Christ be magnified Let His praises rise Christ be magnified in me Christ be magnified from the altar of my life. Christ be magnified in me. Yes. We entrust ourselves to you. Have your way in us, O oh God. Our lives are for your glory We entrust ourselves to you Have your way in me My life is for your glory My life is for your glory. Tell the Lord, I entrust, I entrust myself to you. Have your way, have your way in me. My life is for, my life is for your glory. My life is for your glory. So Lord, we have received from you a spirit. A spirit that endures, a spirit that doesn't shrink back because of fear. We have received from you all that we need. And we remind ourselves today that you are worthy. You are worthy to follow even into the fire. You're worthy to follow even into suffering. You're worthy to follow even into trials, God. And Lord, I'm in agreement today. that in this time of ease I ought to be putting good things inside myself learning in this season to strengthen myself in you so that when the squeeze comes I can endure so that when the squeeze comes what comes out, Lord God, is honor and glory and endurance, and faith, and patience, and love and compassion. We need all of that, God. And, and that is what you have deposited inside of us by your spirit. So, Lord, I bind the tendency of your church to live by the flesh. And I loose, O oh Lord, the deepest desire of our hearts, which is 
to live by the Spirit. Will you tell the Lord today, I bind life in the flesh. Can you declare that? And I loose over myself life in the Spirit. We entrust ourselves to you. Have your way in me. My life is for your glory. My life is for your glory. We commit these things to you, Jesus. And I speak this over your church and over the airwaves. True vine exists for your glory in times of ease and in times of trial. In the name of Jesus, amen. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. And may you have faith to endure whatever comes. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.